0: Hi, this is episode 29 of K. Ray Reads to You. Today we have part one of chapter 10 of Absolute Zero by Helen Cresswell. Chapter 10 The confrontation that took place on the return of the tanned and pleasantly smiling Parkers was indeed something of a landmark in Bagthorpian rows. What marked it out, apart from the four, five, or even at times six-cornered nature of the battle, was the presence of a kind of Greek chorus of assorted workmen, all of whom, at some stage, downed tools to listen and even from time to time participate. There was no doubt that this gave the whole thing an extra dimension and added to its already epic quality. Sorting out the various claims and counterclaims, weighing the comparative rights and wrongs of the different parties, would have presented a gargantuan problem even to a trained legal mind the threads of debate were so intricately raveled that the workmen could not be expected to follow them and were accordingly always weighing in on the wrong side. They made the natural mistake, to begin with, of assuming that Grandma and Daisy, in view of their respective extreme age and youth, were automatically innocent. Because Aunt Celia was so beautiful and did so much weeping and a clasping of her only child to her bosom, they tended to exonerate her, too. When Uncle Parker affably offered each workman a duty-free packet of cigarettes, there was really very little doubt in their minds as to who the real villain of the piece, as to who was the real villain of the piece, especially as he did so much yelling. They had been influenced, too, by Mrs. Fosdyke, who missed the row owing to an urgent appointment with the dentist. She had kept them liberally supplied with hot beverages, on condition that they should drink these out of sight of Mr. Bagthorpe. He was, she told them, so mean-minded that he would as likely as not begin hurling these hot drinks about and even scald somebody. They were inclined to believe this. Jack, who had an untypically Bagthorpian sense of fair play, thus found himself, for the first time he could remember, actually in sympathy with his father. He became particularly irritated by Aunt Celia's moans and warblings and claspings of a reluctant and even struggling daisy. Along with his parents, he was unconvinced by the elevation of "'All the bees are dead' to the status of mystic utterance. He even risked putting his own oar in. "'But all the bees aren't dead,' he protested during a momentary lull. Aunt Celia cast on him a look of disbelieving pity. "'Oh, so literal!' she murmured. "'Whence is it fled, the visionary gleam, and so young?' Jack had no way of answering this remark, of which he could make neither head nor tail. The row raged on for something near two hours. To plot its course was nearly impossible, since at any given moment it was hard to know who exactly was ranged against whom. Grandma changed sides the most. The row kicked off with the writing on walls issue. Grandma came right out and said that her spell of writing on walls had been the best days of her life since she had lost Thomas, and that she would feel everlasting gratitude to Daisy for this. She intended, she added, to alter her will. Nonetheless, Uncle Parker was about to concede that perhaps he had better contribute a couple of tins of paint, when Daisy gave the whole battle an unexpected turn by announcing loudly, I didn't write on the walls, so there, Ariok did. He's a bad boy. (laughs) Ariok, echoed Aunt Celia faintly. She ran the syllables together, and the way she said the name gave it a distinctly different sound like that of an Arab oil sheik or Indian spirit guide. She made it sound quite a different name. When she finally came to understand who Ariok was, she became, even for Aunt Celia, decidedly distraught. Her hairpins fell out, and her ringlets tumbled wildly down, and the plumber and carpenter and their mates gazed fascinated. At this point Grandma, who never minded taking two sides at once in the interests of stirring things up, proclaimed that she too wished Arioch to go away. She was tired, she said, of hearing everlastingly about Arioch and how bad he was. This was, of course, a clear case of jealousy. Daisy had now become the light of Grandma's life. She saw that awful child through glasses as rose-tinted as any she had ever directed on the late Thomas. It seemed to her that just as she had lost him under Uncle Parker's wheels, so she was now in danger of losing Daisy to Ariock. She talks more to that awful Arioch than she does to me, she complained. There is no such person, and I demand that you get rid of him instantly. This brought such squeals of protest from Daisy herself that Grandma swiftly modified her position. All I meant was, she explained, that I wish Arioch would speak up. So far I have had difficulty in hearing him. Any friend of Daisy's is a friend of mine. (laughs) When the row swung around to Daisy's flood, Mr. Bagthorpe did so much yelling that the carpenter and his mate set to hammering on new skirting boards. The plumbers, after a swift exchange of glances, initiated their own sabotage by fetching a lot of pipes and clanking them about. When the speech and the Greek chorus's racket ended more or less simultaneously, Uncle Parker was left, in effect, with no case to answer. All he, in fact, said was, "'I'm sorry you feel like that about it, Henry.' And Daisy added, "'It wasn't me. It was Airy Auk.' To which Grandma, eager to reinstate herself, added, "'Of course it was.' Where Mr. Bagthorpe made his big tactical mistake was in leaving the matter of his desecrated script to the end. He himself felt this to be the most outrageous of Daisy's misdemeanors, and had saved it as its climax. The rest, however, were left relatively cold by the matter. As his father's voice rose and fell, Jack could sense that the heat had gone, the atmosphere was cooling, interest dying off. Right in the middle, Grandpa entered, and nodded all round to everyone and switched on the television. The sound was off but most of the company present, including the workmen, found their eyes wandering to the screen. Mr. Bagthorpe, unaware that his sound and fury were signifying nothing, carried on. He made a further tactical error. Throughout the row he dwelt obsessively on the subject of money. He did a lot of yelling about paying bills and whose moral responsibility they were. The result of this was that the plumber and the carpenter and their mates... "'informed Mrs. Bagthorpe at the end of the day "'that they wished to terminate their services. "'Their estimation of Mr. Bagthorpe had sunk "'to the point where they saw the likelihood of their bills "'ever being paid was slight, if not existent, "'if not non-existent. "'They had accordingly decided to cut their losses and go. "'They did not tell Mrs. Bagthorpe this, of course. "'They made excuses about ailing old mothers and so forth, "'and Mrs. Bagthorpe inquired of them how much was owed.' With alacrity, they fixed on a sum, and she wrote out a check then and there. They hastily collected their tools and left. Mr. Bagthorpe was in his study, making notes about the row. When he emerged, his wife unwisely told him what had happened, and he was just beginning to shout again when the front-door knocker banged. Mr. Bagthorpe almost ran through the hall and flung open the door. Jack, who happened to be halfway downstairs, heard the typical snapped-out, "'Well!' and saw in the porch a young man and woman carrying briefcases and wearing a lot of shoulder-bags and cases on straps. "'Mr. Bagthorpe!' he heard the young woman cry. "'Oh, congratulations! Oh, you happy, happy family!' "'Oh, what?' repeated Mr. Bagthorpe incredulously. "'Who are you? What are you selling? I don't want any!' Slowly Jack descended. "'He had the feeling that he might be going to witness something interesting. (laughs) "'The girl caught sight of him. "'And you must be Jack!' she exclaimed. "'Oh, Jack, I feel as if I know you already.' "'Mr. Bagthorpe and Jack were now equally nonplussed. "'The only way the former could think of dealing with this enigmatic pair "'was to slam the door in their faces. "'It was not as if it was an unusual thing for him to do, "'even at the best of times. "'From the other side came peals of merry laughter,' and even outright giggles. "'My God!' exclaimed Mr. Bagthorpe. "'Listen to that. They're lunatics!' "'We know you and your little jokes, Mr. Bagthorpe,' came a teasing, girlish voice. "'My little jokes?' (laughs) Mr. Bagthorpe now (laughs) banged a fist against his forehead. Always a bad sign. "'Get out of here!' he yelled at the front door. "'Get the hell out of here!' There were further giggles from the other side, a whispered conference, and then footsteps receded over the gravel. Mr. Bagthorpe stood and listened, then shook his head dully. I think I have a persecution complex, he said. That felt like persecution to me. Even complete strangers are after me now. And that's the end of Part 1 of Chapter 10. See you next time.